in January of 1908, just outside of Paris, a child who was playing alongside the banks of the Seine and stumbled and fell into the river. And his parents were nowhere to be seen, and the accident could have spelled real tragedy were it not for a Newfoundland living nearby. You don't know what a Newfoundland is, it's one of those giant bear dogs. And the giant dog heard the child's, child's cries for help and sprang into action. And without hesitation, jumped into the water and dragged the child to safety. Well, the dog was hailed as a local hero, and the child's grateful parents both thanked the dog's owners and also gave the dog a juicy beefsteak as a token of their gratitude. Well, a few days later, the dog was called into action again when another child stumbled into the river, and the precedent having been set, that child's parents also gave the dog a steak in thanks. And similar incidents began occurring with concerning frequency. And while the dog was there to help in each instance, the residents began to fear that something nefarious was at play. They began to suspect that someone was pushing children into the river, either to deliberately harm the children or as a distraction while they were committing a, a more nefarious crime somewhere else. And so they set up a, 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 a secret neighborhood watch, like a community watch, to try to catch the criminal in the act. Well, you can probably guess what happened next. As it turns out, there was no criminal. As it turns out, the dog, who had learned that saving children earned him a stake, was looking for children playing alongside the river, pushing them into the water, and then jumping in to save the children. The story was reported on the 2nd of February 1908 in the New York Times, carrying the headline, Dog, a Fake Hero. Now, of course, the dog never intended to harm anyone, but neither was he really interested in saving people. His interest was purely selfish. He had learned the secret to a profitable source of beefy revenue. That was saving children. Now, that story makes us chuckle precisely because the culprit was a dog. If it's a human being who is doing something like that, that is far less funny. It's far less humorous when humans pursue self-interest to the detriment of others. Well, our hidden figure for tonight, Abigail, she is set against the backdrop of such a self-seeking, self-serving person. Nabal was a man who cared for no one but himself. He showed utter disdain to anyone who would not benefit him directly. But his wife, Abigail, our hidden figure for tonight, radiated godly wisdom as she interceded to safeguard her family and her home. So Stephen read the story for us, and thank you for that, Steve. You've got this man by the name of Nabal. The, the name Nabal means fool. You know your parents must love you if they, if they name you fool. Um, and as it turns out, he was as foolish as his name uh, would bear witness. The chapter opens with, with Samuel dying. And then we are introduced to these three primary characters. You've got the king on the run, David. You've got wealthy but foolish Nabal. And then you've got beautiful and discerning Abigail. And Nabal, uh, David sends a small contingent to Nabal, asking for some food for the men that were with him. Nabal sees no way that this will benefit him. And so he refuses. And David, um, somewhat uncharacteristically for David, immediately springs to, to military action. Um, in fact, the, the chapter before this and the chapter after this, we see him refusing to take action against Saul. But in this one, for whatever reason, he gets angry very quickly and he jumps into, into action. And Abigail is informed of this and she goes and she sorts out the problem. She goes and she meets David and she brings this gift to David. She pleads with David to forgive her husband's folly. David agrees to do that. And um, 
Abigail then gets home and finds her, her self-indulgent husband busy um, partying it up, drunk out of his mind, and um, decides that's not the best time to tell him what had happened. And so the next morning she tells him what happens. We'll see some of this as we go through. And he appears at that point to have had some sort of a cardiac event, and he dies 10 days later. David then marries Abigail, and the text closes with David marrying another woman as well. Well, that's the basic plot line of the chapter. And the question is, if we're focusing on, on Abigail as a hidden figure, Abigail as the hidden figure for tonight, what lessons do we learn from Abigail? What lessons do we learn from the story? And let me suggest, I think there are at least four lessons that we can learn in the time that we have here tonight. The first lesson is a lesson about what I've called foiling folly. Foiling folly. First, we learn from Abigail that folly does not have to win the day. The Bible warns us in no uncertain terms against, un, against foolish associations. It tells us that, that, um, that foolish associations lead to our own downfall, lead to our own destruction. And that is a testimony, that, it, that is a warning that we should take very seriously. We never want to minimize the power of folly to lead to destruction. But Abigail teaches us that folly's destruction is not inevitable. Because Abigail found herself in a marriage to a very foolish man, to the fool of fools. But she did not allow herself to be dragged down by his folly. Instead, the text tells us, as Steve read in chapter 25, verse 3, the, man, the name of the man was Nabal, and his wife, the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Abigail is described here as discerning. The word discerning, it carries the idea of carefully evaluating a situation before you take a course of action. We see her doing that, although she, she recognizes the urgency of the action when she goes to David to meet with him, she carefully thinks about what's the best approach for this. And so she gathers the correct food, the correct fruit, she thinks about what she's going to say, she carefully evaluates the situation before she goes in to meet with David. It's the same word that is used to describe Joseph in uh, the end of Genesis, where Joseph wisely and discerningly led Egypt through those years of, of famine. First Kings chapter 3 uses this word when Solomon prays for a wise and discerning heart so that he can govern the people of Israel. This is the kind of discernment that we see in Abigail. The difference between Abigail and Nabal was that she prized and she strove for wisdom. She was discerning. Proverbs 17 verse 24 says this, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. The idea is that the one who is discerning is focused on the wisdom that he's there and he's keeping his eyes fixed on the wisdom because he wants to act in a wise way. Whereas the fool is so distracted by what's happening around him that he misses the wisdom that is right under his nose. Abigail was discerning. She had her mind set on wisdom And she was going to make sure that she behaved in a wise way. And she knew where to find wisdom, we don't doubt. Because the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms, where do we find wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Nabal was a man who displayed an alarming lack of reverence. Who's this David? He knew who David was. He knew that David was God's appointed king. But he he didn't care about that because David wouldn't benefit him. Who is this David that I should pay any attention to him? But Abigail deeply feared God and therefore acted in a way that was appropriate. Let me say that this kind of wisdom 
does not come naturally, particularly when the world surrounds us with folly. Those who will be discerning should work hard at it. We must give ourselves to meditating frequently on God's truth, to being the kind of people that Psalm 1 talks about, those who, who are blessed because they meditate on the truth of God. If we will act in a manner that is honoring to God, as Abigail did in this chapter, it will begin by us giving ourselves to the truth of God's word, to meditating day and night on God's law. And so the simple question is, do you feed on a steady diet of truth? It begins with a very simple question. Do you, do you read your Bible? Do you listen to your Bible, perhaps, if, you, if you're more of an audio person and you listen to an audio Bible? Do you prayerfully want to study God's truth to uncover its deep wisdom? Do you expose yourself to truth throughout the week, reading and listening to and watching things which, which point you to truth rather than point you to the folly of the world? The world's folly assaults us on every side. And if we are going to give ourselves to truth, we will... We will need to work hard at that. And if we don't give ourselves the truth, we'll find ourselves far less like Abigail, and I think far more like her foolish husband. But a second lesson I think we learned from Abigail tonight is a lesson about committed convictions. I've called it committed convictions. We learned that Abigail was committed to her convictions, even when that conviction would potentially invite conflict. This discerning and beautiful woman, as the text calls her, was married to a man who was harsh and badly behaved, and who was, as his name witnessed, a fool. And standing for what was right would surely invite tension in the home, but she was more committed to doing what was right than to her own comfort. It's interesting, this word that is translated harsh is a very strong word that, that evokes the idea of pain. When this word is used, that is used of people that inflict pain on others. It's a word that is used of God harshly judging the Egyptians in the ten plagues. It's used of, um, in Judges chapter 19, of the men that abused the, the, concub uh, the, the Levite's concubine all night. It describes Saul's fear that the Philistines would come and mistreat him with various acts of torture in 1 Samuel 31. And Zedekiah's fear that the, that the king of Babylon would do the same to him in Jeremiah chapter 38. Those who are harsh inflict pain on the objects of their harshness. So Abigail knows that by doing what is right, there's the very real possibility of her facing harsh, even abusive repercussions from her foolish husband. But she was committed to her convictions and entrusted the outcome to God. Now let me just pause here with, with a very important caveat. I am not saying that people that are in abusive relationships are required by God to stay in them. Okay. I think there can be godly wisdom after seeking counsel in separating yourself from an abusive situation. My point here is simply that Abigail would not compromise what she knew to be right. She would not compromise her convictions just to keep peace in the home. And at the same time, I want you to observe that she carried out her convictions winsomely. Because she decides what she's going to do, but it tells us in... Verse 19, at the end of verse 19, she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. We're told later on, um, when she arrives home in verse 36, after meeting with David, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing until the morning. She knew that, that she didn't have to raise the temperature in the home in order to stand for doing what was right. She didn't deliberately seek tension. 
she kept from Nabal what she was doing because she knew that he was a harsh man and she saw no sense in inviting tension unnecessarily. She knew when she arrived back that there's no point in talking to this man while he's drunk and it's just going to make matters worse. And so she waited until the next morning when he was in a better frame of mind before informing him what had happened. She stood in her convictions, even if it invited tension, but she did so without being the cause of that tension. You see, it shows great discernment when we try to diffuse situations rather than raising the temperature. When you know that there's, there's, there's tenseness around this, you can choose to either make it worse or you can choose to try to diffuse the situation. Abigail was hardly in a unique situation in the history of our world. Many wives have found themselves married to foolish and even harsh husbands. And many husbands have found themselves, frankly, married to foolish and even harsh wives. And I think Abigail serves as a model for us, showing how to stand for truth when you are married to a fool. She shows that we should not compromise our convictions, but also that there is little wisdom in making matters worse by raising tension. Stand for truth, in other words, but do so winsomely. I think a third lesson that we we learn from Abigail is something about a a pro-life perspective, as I've called it, a pro-life perspective. You see, Abigail might easily have reasoned, being in this, this harsh marriage where she faces the harshness for her husband, she might well have reasoned, David is coming to deliver me. All I need to do is keep quiet, not say anything, David will take care of my problem for me. Because they, and and she's, she's, not, she's not in any danger here, because what was David's commitment in verse 22? God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. She's not male. She's not in any danger here. So she could just say, well, let me keep my mouth quiet. Let me just keep my mouth closed. Let David take care of this problem, and then I'll be delivered from this, from this harsh marriage. But Abigail was discerning, and therefore she was able to look outward to the good of others and act on their behalf. She discerned that Nabal's foolish and selfish actions would bring harm to the household, and so she stepped in to help others. You know, when we face harshness from others, when we face abuse from others, it's very difficult sometimes to look past our own nose because we're so caught up in the situation and so focused on what is happening to us. Abigail models for us concern for the greater good, concern for others. It's always a good thing to ask whether our actions will help or harm others. When you face harshness in your marriage, how can you best respond not only for your own comfort but also for the good of the children? When you face injustice in a church, how can you respond not only for your own comfort, but in the best interests of the entire church? When you face wrongdoing at work, will your response help or will it harm others also affected by that wrongdoing? Can you see, in other words, past your own nose to the benefit of others? And so we learn lesson number one, a lesson about foiling folly. Secondly, we learn a lesson about committed convictions Thirdly, we learn a lesson about pro-life perspective. And finally, we learn a lesson, I believe, lesson four, about something about modeling mediation. As we bring this time, our time in this text to a close, I don't want us to overlook an important theological implication here. It's interesting that as, you, as, as this chapter opens, it opens with one verse, if you, if you have, at least if you have an ESV or you know, many other translations, there's one verse that's kind of almost set by itself. There's this record of, of Samuel's death. And some interpreters wonder, what are we doing with this? It seems out of place that to just mention Samuel's death briefly and then move on. 
And in fact, in the ESV, it is set in its own section, just what, verse 1a, the death of Samuel. And then the second part of verse 1 continues the story of David and Abigail. But actually, I want to suggest that Samuel's death is placed here very carefully. Because Samuel's death leaves the reader wondering, now what? Samuel was the prophet priest who interceded for David. He was the prophet priest who gave David counsel when he needed counsel. And now Samuel's dead. Who's going to step into the place of Samuel? And at least in this chapter, that person was Abigail. She steps in where Samuel was gone. I want you to notice carefully the theme of intercession in her speech. This speech in verses 23 to 31, it's one of the longest speeches in the Bible recorded by a woman. And I want you to notice what she says. Look in verse uh, 24. She fell at his feet. She comes to David. She fell at his feet and she said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the word of your servant. Look in verse 28. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. Let me ask you, had Abigail done anything wrong to David? No, but she was taking the guilt upon herself in order to save others. And let me ask you, does that sound familiar? Does that not remind you of someone who is perhaps a greater David, who took the trespasses of others upon himself so that they could be delivered? It's interesting that time again in this In these verses here, Abigail taught David a very important lesson, which is summarized in verse 33. When David speaks speaks to Abigail after she has interceded, David says to her in verse 33, Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. She taught David that you can't save yourself. You need to rely on God. She says that a couple of times in her own speech. In her discernment, She taught David to trust the Lord to vindicate him. She helped David to stay right with God so that David didn't try to step into God's place and deliver himself. She became to him something of a Samuel after Samuel was dead. Abigail, I think in shadow form, reminds us that we cannot work salvation by our own hands. The salvation, of course, that David is speaking of is a military salvation, but the principle extends beyond that. We cannot work salvation by our own hands. We need someone to intercede for us so that we can be right with God. And if we are looking for the intercessor, for an intercessor, for someone who will stand in our place to intercede to God, where do we look? 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We have no hope of being right with God or of escaping God's eternal wrath apart from Jesus Christ. He took our sin upon his own shoulders when he died on the cross so that we could be delivered from eternal wrath to eternal life. And he is the only one who can deliver us in this way. And so as you think of Abigail the mediator, will you entrust yourself to Christ the mediator for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Nabal and Abigail. Thank you for Abigail's wisdom. And we pray that you would teach us from the truths that we see in this chapter this week. Help us to walk before you with wisdom, avoiding folly, because we are committed with great reverence to following and obeying our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.